I invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges. Follows the book of Joshua, right before the short book of Ruth and the large book of First and Second Samuel. We're going to be in an introductory mode for a while, uh, and I really debated how to start this off, um, whether we would just jump right into the text, because technically the text itself has two introductions. Uh, chapter 1 all the way through 2, 5 is sort of the first introduction, and we're going to look at that, kind of the structure today, so you'll have a better idea of what I'm talking about. But the, there's two introductions in the, in the book, but because the structure is so um, helpful in this case, this is the first time where I've provided an outline of the entire book before we've gone through it, um, but I think it, it will really help you get your bearings, and you might want to keep this tucked away in your Bible somewhere as as we make our way through this series, just to follow along and to refer back to and um, to see where we are in the text, in the context of the whole book. Um, and, and you probably are familiar with at least some of the stories of the book of Judges. Um, and so you know that there's some very colorful characters, some very um, interesting events that take place. You're wondering how we're going to make our way through this in a sermon series. Del Ralph Davis, one of my favorite common commentaries on this book, he writes this. The church has her way of dealing with embarrassing scripture. Ignore it. Yet that's difficult to do with judges. It's so interesting. Only people who take tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it. And I do find that true. Honestly, just reading the text is going to be enlightening. Just reading through the passages is going to be, um, it's going to catch, capture your interest. It's going to be the hook, if you will, every time we, we um, prepare for a, a new sermon. Um, and so we are going to spend a lot of time this morning looking at various passages. We're going to do a lot of reading and turning back and forth in the book of Judges. Um, so prepare for that. And hopefully you'll be encouraged to see this, this structure and to see really how beautiful this has been laid out um, very intricately. But in terms of the big picture, what we find here is uh, Von Roberts and kind of the, the timeline through the Old Testament there. You've got this promised kingdom where God has given covenant promises to his people. And then those covenant promises are being fulfilled now to where Joshua, at the end of Joshua, they're in the land. They've received, they've taken control of the promised land for the most part. And we're going to see right off the bat that in Judges, that's, that's not in, entirely true in the sense of being in complete control. But there is a partial fulfillment here. So this is the partial kingdom, and it leads us into the prophesied kingdom, where, um, which is later on in, in the canon of Scripture. Um, as far as just a brief word on the author, there's no mention of who the author is. Some have Credit it to Samuel because it would have been um, he would have been sort of the last judge uh, representing this time period as well as um, be ushering in the monarchy. Um, and so some would consider him to be at least one of the authors among many, with there being a final editor. 
Uh, and, but once you say that there's a final, so it used to be that there must have been a, a combination of authors and all of these accounts just were, were put together. Uh, and then they realized, well, there had to have been an editor because there's too, too much of a structure here that's, that's well, it's well laid out, well designed as a book as a whole. And so there must have been a final editor that put all these pieces together. But once you say there's a single final editor, you're not that far from saying there's a single author who wrote this, right? And so I, we don't really know if it's, a, if it's one author, multiple authors, but the way we have it now is the way that God ordained it to be uh, received by the church, and, um, and whoever the author is, it's anonymous. It, again, the context here is Judges Falls be after the book of Joshua, before the larger book of Samuel, with Ruth being a contemporaneous event, right? Ruth is taking place at the same time as the book of Judges is taking place. And so, uh, just a reminder, at the end of Joshua, if you want to turn back there, you can. Joshua chapter 21, just a few chapters back. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, we read this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's the state of things at the, at the end of Joshua. Um, and so you would anticipate there being harmony. There being just a, you know, an enjoyment of the promised land, an enjoyment of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises on their behalf. But what you find in Judges is, a, is the opposite, right? Everything that Joshua had gained begins to be lost in Judges. Ultimately, will lead us to Samuel, um, which you don't need to turn there. I'll just read one verse or two verses from Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. We read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So first of all, Israel took the land, and by the end of this period, this phase in redemptive history, they're asking for a king. They're asking for a king, not just any king, but a king like the nations. Right? They want to be more like their neighbors in this way. They want a king so that they can function and operate like everyone else. So Samuel represents this last judge and prophet. And the question that judges really answers for us is twofold. First of all, why didn't Israel finish the work that Joshua began? And then secondly, what led to Israel's monarchy? Right, what brought them from a period of, of having a judge, a savior, a rescuer in the form of a judge, to depending and relying upon a king. And what we'll see throughout the book is that Judges describes this downward spiral of God's people. We're going to see it in cycles. Seven cycles specifically are reflected throughout the book of Judges. And, and yet it's not just a cycle because each cycle progressively gets worse and worse. Right? There's greater rebellion, greater chaos. So that, and you'll see that this morning, by the end, uh, they're not even recognizable as God's people. 
So, here's what I want us to understand as an overall theme for the book of Judges. Judges teaches us to distrust ourselves and to wholly lean on God through the perfect example and deliverer, Jesus Christ, to which all of these judges are going to be pointing us towards. So before we read the first two verses of Judges, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book. We thank you that we see a very clear picture of our sin, a very clear picture of depravity, and we can relate to it. On one one hand, it's shocking to see, and yet, in a very real sense, we can understand and and we see ourselves in, in the picture. So help us, as we read through this, as we consider the structure of this book, help us to to be convinced of this message, to be convinced that we cannot trust ourselves, that we have nothing in ourselves that's worthy of being trusted, but we can lean wholly upon you through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Read with me, Judges. We're just going to look at the first two verses. And and really, as I said, we're going to be reading through several passages. But this is the first section that we'll want to read. Verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Amen. This is God's word. Well, this morning what we're going to do is look at a structural introduction to the book of Judges. We're going to look at um, sort of the the outline of the book as a whole. We'll spend most of our time there. We're also going to make a couple of observations on these opening chapters and then look at some of the outcomes we'd like to have as we work through this sermon series. So outline, observations, and outcome. Next week, we'll look at a thematic introduction. Okay, we'll look at some of the major themes and what we'll find over and over. It's, gonna, it's going to relate to what we're learning um, this morning. But we'll have those two introductions, and then we'll get into the text the following time. So to begin with the outline, you'll have an, a handout in your bulletin that you can follow along here. You notice there's three major in, um, Divisions. You have the introduction, the judge, deliverers, and then you have the epilogue or the conclusion. Right? And so the, there's three major divisions with a double introduction, A and B, and then you have B and A as well in the epilogue, the double conclusion. And this is called the chiasm. There's a chiastic structure. I've used that language before in the past, but maybe you've not, never really seen it in, in an outline format. Um, it's frequently found. This kind of... Um, literary device is frequently found in ancient literature. So, in fact, you can see chiasms throughout epic poetry like the Iliad, uh, the Odyssey, Beowulf, um, in in addition to other uh, texts. But there are numerous examples of this in the Hebrew Old Testament as well as in the Greek New Testament. There are several examples of them using a chiasm. And the purpose for this structure is that it marks off sections um, before there were chapters and verses. You know that the chapters and verses, verses did not 
come with the with the author, right? The author didn't decide those things. That was decided well after we adopted, um, you know, well, well after Scripture was was accepted and canonized. So these chapters and verses are not always accurate, frankly, where they divide passages. Um, and so this was a helpful way of understanding the structure, right? You you could em- emphasize uh, the climax of a text by putting it in the middle of this chiastic structure. And, and chiasm is just really the uh, Greek letter for, for what is a, looks like an X. Right? And so as you go down one side, you're going to come back on the other. And what is at the center point there, which happens to be in our outline here, Gideon, what's at the middle there is the climax. It's kind of con- being emphasized by the structure. And we'll see how how the author's emphasizing this for us. But it, it also can emphasize different themes of the text. So you'll have what begin with a particular theme, and you'll mark that theme as being ended by referencing it again, almost in an identical way as it was introduced. So chiasms are, are very common. And honestly, just about, I think, every single um, commentary and um, research that I did on this book has some chiastic structure to it. They're not all identical, but they have some form that's similar to this. This happens to be the one that I appreciated the most. And so let's review this outline. Um, You can see the source there at the bottom is from D.W. Gooding. Um, It's provided in Ian Proven's book, A Biblical History of Israel, uh, which I read in seminary and uh, would be a helpful one if you want to learn more about this. But uh, this is the the outline that we used in class. And really it shows seven cycles. You notice the judges uh, all through from C to C again, right? From from the first C to the last C, you have seven different judges that are represented there. Um, and so there's seven cycles. And you know, in typ- typical Hebrew um, Literature seven does have an emphasis upon completion. Right? It's, it's a, it indicates a complete number, a full number. Even though technically there are twelve judges in the book of Judges, there's major ones and then there's minor ones, and we'll talk about that as well. But let's look at this first one. So this introduction A is actually the political decline. This is Israel versus the Canaanites, and we already read verses one and two. Where Joshua, or uh, yeah, Joshua and the people of Israel inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Judah was to lead. And if you go to the end, Judges chapter 20, this is the, the last. Uh, so if you follow down in your outline to the bottom, the second A. you'll see that this is a, also representing a political decline. But in chapter 20, verse 18, we read this. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Sounds quite similar, does it not? And yet, who is the enemy? first time you're talking about Israel versus the Canaanites, here you're talking about Israel versus Benjamin. 
one of the tribes. Obviously, the emphasis is, is that there was unity in God's command in, in the beginning, but by the end, there's anarchy. There's rebellion. So much so that they're now eradicating themselves. Look at the religious decline. Go back to chapter 2. This could be defined as the religious or the moral decline. In chapter 2, verses uh, 7 through 11, read this. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And so this is a clear description of the religious and moral decline now of the people from the beginning. But look back at chapter 17 now. Judges chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Here we see corruption among the Levites. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. And you're like, this is great. I dedicate it to the Lord to make a carved image and a metal image. <clears throat> Rebellion. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So now you see there's moral corruption as the people are rebelling against God and following after Baal in the beginning of Judges. And you think, well, how is that going to get worse? Well, not only are the people, but the religious leaders, the Levites, those who were supposed to be holding, you know, the holding the covenant people accountable are entering into their own sort of moral chaos and depravity. You see, um, in the first judge. Listed in your outline as C, you have Othniel, and that parallels with Samson, the last judge in the book of Judges. And what's the connection there? Well, in Judges chapter 1, now this, this is where it gets a little bit um, confusing, but you, when you have the story of Othniel, it's listed in chapter, seven, or chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, but there's a reference to him in the first introduction in verses 11 through 15, which refers to um, the woman Oxa, right? From 
Verse 11 of chapter 1 says, From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Safer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Safer and captures it, I will give him Oxa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So you see now, in, in Othiel's case, his wife is promoting their success. And in Samson, you have the opposite. He has foreign women who are promoting his downfall, who are against him. So look at chapter um, 16, verses 4 through 6. We read this, And after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means he may overpower him, that we may bind him, to humble him, and he... And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please, tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one should subdue you. So Delilah is promoting his downfall. She's opposed to him. She's not supporting him. And she's a, a, a foreign woman. So... As we make our way through this, I'm not going to go through the rest of the outline in this fashion, but you see there's a connection at every point from the opening to the conclusion. And then, and then there's these parallels all along the way so that the judges do relate to one another. And you'll notice this. Um, it's not a, a perfect outline. There are some things missing. There's no mention of the minor judges in the outline. However, that does sort of that's consistent with the narrative itself. There's very little details given about the minor judges. And so, for instance, as we make our way through and we get to um, Shamgar, all it tells us is in, in one sentence, uh, chapter 3, verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anoth, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And that's all we have. So we won't have an entire sermon devoted to the judge Shamgar. But there should be some mention in the outline of their role because they are important to the the context, right? And this outline doesn't consider them. Secondly, Abimelech, when we get to him in chapter 8, 33 through 10, 5, Abimelech is really an anti-judge. No one really considers him to follow the the typical cycle, right, the pattern for the judges. He is an anti-judge. There's really nothing positive at all to say about Abimelech, and that'll be evident as we get to that passage. Um, and, then, and then lastly, chiasms and any kind of structure, any kind of outline that, like this, is, it, it minimizes some pieces of the text, right? We, it, it helps in that it gives us a broad overview, but, but it, it's not divine. Right? It's just an outline of divine scripture. Right? And so when we're thinking about this outline, it's, we don't have to force every little reference right, into, into this outline. For instance, when you look at Ehud, 
and Jephthah in D there. It says um, he takes a message to a foreign king and slays Moabite at the fords of the Jordan. And then down at the bottom, you have the second D. Jephthah sends messages to a foreign king and slays Ephraimites at the fords of the Jordan. Neither of those components of those of Ehud or Jephthah are central to the narrative. Those are those are kind of secondary features that he's it's interesting that the fords of the Jordan are mentioned in both cases, but they're sort of secondary um, cursory events that happened in the text. And, and so it feels a bit forced at times. Right. Um, it, it highlights aspects of the narrative that aren't necessarily central to the story. But I still think it's helpful and important that you have a broad overview and a structure as you make your way through. And I think it actually enhances your appreciation of of the text. So just a couple of observations. First of all, the outline um, or the beginning of Judges, chapter 1 and chapter 2, both reference the death of Joshua. Right. So Joshua dies twice. If this were just a chronological order, we would say, whoa, big mistake there. Joshua died at the beginning. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquire of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, we read that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So it's clear that what he's doing is he's setting up a second introduction, it's a, it, and it's looking at it from a different angle. In one, they're looking at the political decline. In the second introduction, they're looking at the religious or moral decline. But it also emphasizes that this text is not strictly chronological. And so if you were to add up every, every number that's given and, and you were to try to put a timeline together, it's not going to be so simple because a lot of them are overlapping each other and you can't, you can't be precise on the timeline of the book. It would take a lot more time to review. And if you want to uh, do so on your own time, then I can give you some resources to do that. But the political decline is described in Chapter 1. The religious decline is described in chapter 2. And that second part, that summary in chapter 2, really summarizes what follows. Uh, It's a summary of the entire period under the judges, of their rebellion and their adoption of their neighbors' um, idols and, and the idolatry that they fall into. So again, the success of Joshua, the success he experienced in that first generation as they entered into the promised land has been reversed as soon as that generation dies and a generation comes up that does not know God. So Joshua and his generation passed away and the generation that followed, we read in chapter 2, verse 11, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the details of their decline are then recorded in the rest of the, the book. All right. However, what we see in response Over and over again, as much as we see this decline, we see God responding to their faithlessness by being faithful. Right. He raises up a judge. Again, so the territory that was left um, by Joshua, right, he had he had come in and he had taken possession of the land. And yet there were still remained some pockets of hostility there. And we read in chapter 2 that this was given so that the people could be tested, right? That their faithfulness might be tested. It was also to train them, this other generation, in war. And it would allow them to experience the power of God as the previous generation had. And so it was a test 
that they failed miserably. Right? They it, it proves that they could not um, they could not follow along as the previous generation had done. Not only do they fail to attack any of the remaining nations in the land, but they actually begin to compromise and worship their gods and their idols. They adopt them. So as we make our way through, what are the outcomes that we want to find? There's a um, a quote, again, from Dale Ralph Davis from his preface to his commentary. He says this, I remember seeing a cartoon in which a young, hip, guitar-plucking Christian singer announced to his audience, I wrote this song last year, but I think it still has relevance. (laughs) And sometimes if we're thinking about relevance, we don't have to really think about that in terms of God's word. It's always relevant. We don't have to force it into our cultural context to make sense of it. We simply need to learn from it. We need to read it and study it and grow in our understanding of it. Right, so learn more about the biblical text. That's our first um, outcome that I would like to see. We'll understand something more about Israel, something more about the period of the judges. We'll understand something more about a very gruesome period in history that oftentimes we like to ignore. And so we'll address some common misconceptions of the judges. Some will think that the judges are totally negative, that they're following in that same spiral, of that, that downward spiral of the people. And so they'll say that the initial judge is sort of really good and, and, and fairly innocent, but then by the end you have Samson, who's entirely rebellious. Um, I, I disagree with that. I don't think it's totally negative. I also don't think it's totally positive. I think we'll see some things that, that are um, troubling as we would with any human example that's pointing forward to Christ, David included. Right? But I think as we look at the judges, that's the category we think of them as. They're, they're messianic figures. right? They're pointing forward to who Jesus would be. And, and I think we treat them in that light. Um, we also need to see that this is true history. There's details here, names given and, and places and circumstances, events that took place that really, truly happened. This is not written as some fairy tale, as some fantasy. Um, it's, it's written as accurate history. And in fact, the modern archaeological discoveries do not contradict this passage of Scripture. In fact, and oftentimes it, it commends uh, what we read here in Judges. Um, lastly, as far as the biblical text goes, we'll see that the author's intent is to drive their readers to repentance. It's to help us see, help the original audience to see our need to repent, right? Before this same kind of chaos once again enters into the church, right? Secondly, we're going to learn more about God and Christ. That's really the primary function every time you open God's word. Phil Riken said, God is the main character. And he's talking about the book of Judges. God is the main character, but we learn this mainly from summary statements to the effect that what happens on the human scene is, a, is the result of what God did. So in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So the Lord is the one raising up the judge. And that's in that summary sentence. And you'll have that summary every time we start a new cycle. 
And so you'll be reminded God is behind the scenes in all of this. Uh, B.B. Warfield would also commend the same thing. He says the fundamental note of the Old Testament is revelation. It's teaching us about God. So every time we open his word, we shouldn't lose sight of that. And that's easy to do when you have such colorful figures, such colorful characters to discuss and to consider. All right, we, can be, we need to be aware of focusing exclusively on their actions and their deeds and reminding ourselves that, that they're meant to show us something about God and his redemptive grace. Um, ultimately, that they are pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. They're shadows of Jesus Christ. And then, lastly, we would learn something about ourselves. Very simple outcomes, right? But, but critical, really, every time we open God's word, that we would understand the text and what it's, what it's teaching us. Secondly, what it's teaching us about God, and then what it's teaching us about ourselves. That's really the outline of Calvin's Institutes as well. Um, it can be summarized as knowing God and knowing ourselves. But learning more about ourselves, and what we'll see is that we are idolatrous people. As Calvin said, we, our minds are idol factories. We just, we just keep churning out widget after widget, which is an idol. We, we worship those things instead of God. Of course, the idols here are mentioned as Baals and Ashtaroth. That's, you probably, maybe not have even heard those names other than in Scripture. You don't know what they look like. What is, so I've never worshipped Baal or an Ashtaroth, Asherah pole. Um, Ashtaroth is the plural form of, of Asherah. So, what do we mean by that? Well, our idolatry is much more subtle today. But it is just as common, right? And so we need to be asking ourselves as we read through this, what is the thing that we're substituting or adding to our worship of God? What is it that we make central? Right? What do we give our time and our affection to? What do we give our thoughts over to? Right? When we don't have anything to do, what are we thinking? When we don't have anything occupying our thoughts, what fills our minds? Oftentimes that reveals what our idol is, what it is that we're worshiping in place of God, what we're relying upon. And it's, it's naive to think that we've evolved past this primitive form of idolatry. And then secondly, I think we'll see a very clear picture of depravity. Um, it's a gruesome kind of depravity here, the, the most gruesome in some texts that you'll find in any part of Scripture. Um, just thinking about Ehud's assassination of Eglon is, is going to make some of you, um, your stomachs turn. Right? Uh, and it, and it's, it's Scripture, right? We, want to, we don't want to shy away from confronting it and reading it and understanding it. And we want to deal with what is described here. So, parents, there's somewhat of a warning here that some of these sermons will be PG. You'll want to read ahead and understand maybe some of the topics that you'll be discussing with your children afterwards. And, and, and certainly in, as we get near the end, there are some things that will be d- discussed that you may simply want to have your, your children in the back um, and, and to address that at, in a different, at a different time. All right? Um, so I'll leave you to be, uh, uh, you know, I have kids present here, 
and I will be preaching in such a way that I think is appropriate. But there's simply some passages and some descriptions, especially when you get to the um, Levite's concubine in Leviticus 19, um, that you're going to want to prepare for. All right. In the end, it's a call to repentance. And I think as we read these stories, they're very engaging and it creates a very compelling call for us to repent. And so we'll see Israel's apostasy, their downward spiral of the people of Israel throughout the period of Judges as the central theme time and time again. But that's followed by God's response, which is to raise up a deliverer. They're called judges here, but don't think in terms of legal, deciding legal cases. That might have been a, a component of what they, what they did, and we'll see that very clearly in the beginning of Deborah. But as you look at all the other judges, there's almost no reference to anything like that happening. Uh, more than anything, they're, they're deliverers. They come to rescue the people out of their idolatry and out of their um, addiction to paganism. Right? So God's people, despite their continued... Uh, their continual spiral into anarchy and moral chaos will be delivered and saved. So God will continue to provide for them. And we read in the beginning that that he said this will begin with the tribe of Judah. And you saw at the end, again, Judah is taking the lead. Um, And who comes from the tribe of Judah? It's Jesus Christ. So the book of Judges is elevating one tribe and saying "This, this tribe is one to pay attention to. Right? And, and as we as we consider the various judges, we'll learn that the, that this book teaches us to distrust ourselves and to wholly lean on God through the perfect example and deliverer Jesus Christ, and right? who is our Lord and Savior. And so let us look to Him now with gratitude for His redeeming work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. There's a, a lot to consider here as we look at this outline. There's a, a deep